Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. As always, it's a blessing to be here with you. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. This morning's portion of Scripture is probably a very familiar one for most of us. This morning, we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Okay, this is obviously uh, a huge event in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It marks the beginning of Jesus's final week of public ministry prior to him going to the cross for our sins. It really is the culmination of much of what we have been building towards. You know, in our study of the Gospel of Luke, way back in chapter 9, Uh, We read about how Jesus had completed his ministry in Galilee and how it was time for him to be received up, referring to his ascension into heaven. Luke records for us in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, how it came to pass when the time had come for him, referring to Jesus, to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so ever since then, Jesus has been on a journey towards Jerusalem, a journey that would have him fulfill his father's will and complete the mission his father had given to him to ultimately lay down his life on the cross uh, as a substitutionary sacrifice for each and every one of us. You see, our sins needed to be dealt with. A price needed to be paid. And Jesus was sent by the father to pay that price for us. Everything that we've read from then, from chapters 10, 11, 12, and on up here to chapter 19, have been pointing to this day, to this moment, where Jesus would enter into the city of Jerusalem, presenting himself as the Passover Lamb of God. But in our study this morning, we're going to note that not only was Jesus presenting himself as the Passover Lamb of God, he was also presenting himself as a king. But not just any king, the long-awaited king from the line of David, the son of David that was promised to come as the Lord's anointed, God's Messiah. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And the title of our study is going to be The Blessed King. Okay, The Blessed King. We all please rise in honor of the Lord and his word. I'm going to Read our text in its entirety from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I just want to encourage you, please do your best to follow along. Luke continues his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, detailing for us the events of that fateful day in verse 28. When he, referring to Jesus, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to him, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, If I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. 
Father, we do thank you for this morning and the opportunity that we have to gather here to sing your praises, Lord. Um, Such a wonderful time for us as brothers and sisters, as your sons and daughters to glorify you through song. But Lord, now we turn our focus, our attention to your word. And we ask, Lord, that your word would just go forth in power, Lord, that your word would accomplish that which you set it out to. We thank you that your scriptures promise us that your word will accomplish what it's set out to do, that it will return to you uh, fruitful, Lord, uh, accomplishing that which you set it forth to do. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray that we would be open to what your word, what your spirit has to say to us today through your word. Lord, I pray that you would allow me to bring forth this message with clarity. Lord, that anything that's not of you and and is of me, Lord, I pray that it would fall upon deaf ears, but that we'd all receive what you would have for us. And so, Lord, we give you this time. We ask for your Holy Spirit's presence to continue to be with us, to lead us and guide us in all truth. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our opening verse begins with, when he had said this, and in order to keep the context, it is important that we understand that the event that follows, the triumphal entry, okay, it came about directly after what Jesus had just said. Now, if you were with us last week, we looked at what Jesus had just said. He had just spoken a parable to the people that were traveling through Jericho on their way up to Jerusalem. The parable was the parable of the Minas. And without rehashing all the details of the parable, the basic sense of the parable was that people needed to be faithful to invest what God had given them. And Jesus gave the parable for two reasons, we noted. One was because he was drawing near to Jerusalem and his time of public ministry with them was drawing to an end. Okay? Uh, his time to invest in them, to impart to them his word was about to uh, be complete. And then number two, he shared this parable because people had the wrong idea about his coming, thinking that he was going to come and immediately set up and establish an earthly kingdom. The parable was actually used to instruct the people that there would actually be a gap of time that would exist prior to him setting up his kingdom. Yes, he was coming at this time. He's going to enter into the city of Jerusalem. But before he set up that kingdom that they were anticipating, he would first go away to a far off land. We know he would go to his father to receive the kingdom and then to come again. And so that's what this parable was all about. Uh, It was used to teach the people their need to be faithful, to share what he had entrusted to each of them during his public ministry. The people were occupied till he came to do business, okay, to be about his business while they awaited his return. And so after setting the record straight, Jesus begins his final approach to the city of Jerusalem, as described in verse 28. And as he makes this approach, everything Jesus does is going to point to the fact that he is indeed the long-awaited king of the Jews, the king that the Jews have been yearning for and desiring, that he is the son of David that was promised to come, the anointed one. In Hebrew, we say the Mashiach. And in Greek, it's the Christos or the Christ, right? He is the answer to those prophecies, okay? Now, read with me verses 29 through 31. We're going to note one of the first indicators that Jesus gave regarding his position as king of the Jews. It says, And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. As Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he and his disciples came to the small villages of Bethphage and Bethany. Not much is known about these two villages other than that they were situated on or near the road from Jericho to Jerusalem and that they were located on the Mount of Olives, okay, uh, which is just east of the city of Jerusalem. We do know in addition to this that Bethany was the home of Jesus' close friends, Mary uh, and Martha, their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And we'll look at them a little bit later in our uh, study of the Gospel of Luke. 
But as they arrived, Jesus sent two of his disciples to the opposite village to find a colt for Jesus to ride upon. Now, a colt can refer to a young, untrained horse or donkey. In our portion, we know it to be referencing a young donkey. Jesus' instructions to his disciples were very specific, telling them where to find the colt, that it would be tied in need of loosing, that it would be a colt that has never been sat upon, and that someone would probably ask them why they're loosening the colt, and that they were simply to say, because the Lord has need of it. Now, whether or not Jesus had previously made arrangements with someone is not clear. It would seem that perhaps he did so, or at the very least, he knew the owner was a a follower of the Lord, and he would not object to the Lord using his young donkey. But whether Jesus had made prearranged plans or simply had the foreknowledge of the owner's willingness to allow this to happen doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus had worked out all of the behind the scenes details of his entry into Jerusalem. And I find that worth noting that Jesus has worked out all the behind the scenes details for his entry into Jerusalem and his presentation as king. He had everything in place. Everything was under his control. Church family, let me tell you that the same is true today of Jesus, okay? He is at work behind the scenes of our lives, and he is in control of life's situations. He has orchestrated plans and purposes for you and for me to walk in them. Good plans, okay, designed for his glory and for our benefit. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's plans for us, they are for our good, and they've been prepared beforehand by the Lord who is in control of it all. And so let me ask you this question for you to consider this morning. What is God's plan for you? What good works does he have prepared for you right now? And I think the follow-up question is just as important. Are you walking in them? Are you allowing the Lord to lead and guide you in his plan? Because he's worked out all the details and he's provided all that is needed, all that is necessary. Are you submitted to him and his plan for your life? I hope that we can confidently answer that question today, that we know what God's plan is for us and that we are being obedient to walk in it one step at a time, one day at a time. We may not know the full picture But God wants to reveal his plan to us and let us know, hey, this is step one and we need to be obedient with each step God gives to us. Jesus had everything under control. All the details were worked out. Everything was in place so that his disciples could successfully bring to him this cult. And and, and what was so important about this cult, you may be wondering? You see, this cult was just one of the ways in which Jesus was presenting himself as the long-awaited king of the Jews. For it was about 500 years prior to this, during the reign of King Darius of Persia, there was a prophet who was a leader in the restoration of the nation of Israel following after the Babylonian captivity. His name was Zechariah. And Zechariah, in speaking to the Jews about how God would protect them and reestablish them in the land, he spoke the following prophecy, which is recorded in Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You see, Jesus is doing something way different than what he has done for the last 30 years of his life. A major change is taking place here as Jesus plans to enter into Jerusalem. You see, for years, the line has been, my hour has not yet come, okay, or my time has not yet come. 
At the wedding in Cana, Mary, Jesus' mother, wanted Jesus to do something about the wine that had run out. Jesus said, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus fed, after he fed the 5,000, John's gospel tells us that Jesus perceived that the multitudes were about to come and take him by force to make him their king. And he had to escape to the mountain because his time had not yet come. His brothers mockingly told Jesus to go up to Jerusalem during one of the feasts and present him to the people, present himself to the people. But he dismissed them, telling them in John chapter seven, verse six, my time has not yet come. Okay, when confronting some of the religious leaders and exclaiming that they did not know the father, but that he did know the father and was sent by the father, they sought to take him, but no one was able to lay a hand upon him because his hour had not yet come. For years and years, his hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. But all of that is changing now. His hour has come. His time is now. All the waiting has passed and now it is time. The time has come for Jesus to rightly identify himself as the long-awaited king that was prophesied by Zechariah some 500 years prior to this. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David that will establish a kingdom that will never end. And this reminds me of what Paul writes in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul pleads with us in 2 Corinthians that we not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to come to a proper understanding of who Jesus is and accept him as Lord and Savior of your life. For our context within this text, it was Jesus's time. But listen, for us today, today is the day of salvation. The scriptures speak with a sense of urgency regarding salvation and the timing of it all because we never know when the last time to get this right will come. We need to act now. Do not delay. Do not put it off. Jesus told his disciples that if anyone asked about them loosing the colt, they were simply to say, because the Lord has need of it. Jesus needed this colt. He needed this cult to fulfill this prophecy and to point to the fact that he was the king that Zechariah prophesied of 500 years prior to this. Let's continue in our text. We'll see what other evidence there was pointing to Jesus as the blessed king. Read verses 32 through 36 with me. It says, so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the cult, the owners of it said to him, why are you loosing the cult? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. We'll stop right there. Verse 32 tells us that the disciples went and as they went, they found it just as he had said to them. These disciples who actually go unnamed in all four accounts of the triumphal entry. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give us an account of the triumphal entry, but none of those accounts give us the names of these two disciples. Though they go nameless, I believe they leave behind for us a wonderful example to follow. These two were obedient to follow through with a mission that was peculiar, to say the least, right? How awkward would it be to go and start untying a colt and then when someone asks you what you're doing, you simply say, the Lord has need of it. You know, like that would be a little bit uncomfortable, right? I mean, you're going in. It's not your colt. You see it. No, that's the colt, I'm sure. You know, it's like Jesus said it'd be right there and it's tied up. It's that's it. You know, and you start unloosing it and someone says, hey, what are you? Why are you loosening the colt? You know, and he's like, the Lord has need of it. Like, I wonder how they said, did they say it boldly? Was it the Lord has need of it? Or was it like the Lord has need of it? You know, like, I don't know how they said it, but an awkward situation, right? I see this and I think a great example. Okay. I imagine in my own head, the number of ways this could have gone way wrong. And yet it didn't keep them from following through with the mission that the Lord had given to them. You know, what about us? Are we willing to follow through with a mission that potentially would put us in an awkward situation for the Lord? 
you know, sometimes I feel, you know, the spirit inside me telling me to, to go talk to someone about the Lord or to share the love of Christ with someone, perhaps to share something God's laid upon uh, my heart for someone. I don't know if you've ever felt like, man, I feel like God's just given me this word or, or this, you know, something I need to share with this person, whatever it may be. And you know what I have to confess to you, I don't always follow through. You know, sometimes I, I let fear of a potentially awkward situation keep me from stepping out for him. You know, you go and say, hey, I feel like the Lord's, you know, given me this to share with you. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're weird, you know? And it's like, oh man, that's, that could be really awkward, right? It could be challenging. These guys, they went, they did exactly what was asked of them without being concerned with the potentially embarrassing and uncomfortable situation. And I think we ought to follow their example and trust in the Lord, even during those situations that we feel may place us in a potentially awkward or embarrassing situation. We need to trust that God is in control, that he has worked out the details as we've already noted. When they returned to Jesus with the colt, they laid their clothes on the donkey. They set Jesus upon the donkey And as Jesus traveled upon the back of this donkey, many others started removing their outer garments and placing them upon the road that Jesus was traveling upon. And this interesting detail is yet another piece of evidence that should have pointed the people to the fact that Jesus was their king. Because back in 2 Kings chapter 9, Elisha, the prophet, sent a messenger to Jehu informing him that the Lord had chosen him to be king over Israel that the Lord was going to use him to avenge the blood of his servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord that had been shed by the hand of the wicked queen Jezebel. The messenger came and he anointed Jehu with oil and immediately fled from his presence. And as Jehu walked out from the house that he was in, the men that were with him inquired as to what went on. And hesitantly, somewhat reluctantly, Jehu explained what the messenger had said to him that, He was anointed to be the next king. And at that time, we're told that each man hastened to take his garment and put it under Jehu on the top of the steps which Jehu was upon. And they blew trumpets proclaiming, Jehu is king. And so as people did likewise here, removing their outer garments, laying them before Jesus, that should have been a picture to the Jews. This is a king. This is exactly what happened when Jehu was made king. People removed their outer garments. They laid them before him. It's a picture of his uh, kingship. But there was more than just that. Let's continue in our text. We'll see even more evidence and indicators that pointed to Jesus as the king. Read with me verses 37 and 38. It says, Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As Jesus drew near the descent of the Mount of Olives, his disciples began praising God and shouting out, declaring, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, the people knew that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be a king, but not just any king. Their praises are very revealing. What they were saying is actually something that comes from the Old Testament book of Psalms. In Psalm 118, the psalmist speaks of the stone which the builders rejected, how it has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118 verse 22 states, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, Hosanna, right? I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a psalm that spoke of the Messiah, the son of David, that would come and save his people. The people would sing this song of the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as they proclaim before Jesus, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 118. In fact, in Matthew's account, we get even more evidence in his account of the triumphal entry. He includes that the multitudes were also saying, Hosanna to the son of David, a very clear reference to the Messiah. And so even more evidence that lets us know that the disciples who were praising Jesus as he made his way into the city saw Jesus as the son of David and their king who came in the name of the Lord. 
you know what, guys? But if you look back and just consider the entire scene as a whole, it should have reminded the people of another king, the son of David who replaced David upon his throne. You see, it was back in the opening chapter of First Kings when David was slowly fading and bedridden that his son Adonijah made a power play upon the throne. To deprive Adonijah the throne, David had Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada assist him in establishing Solomon as the rightful heir to the throne. And David told these men to take Solomon down to a spring east of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley called Gihon. They were to anoint him as king there and place him on David's donkey and to blow the horns declaring him king. First Kings chapter one, verse 13 tells us that. And so back in first Kings chapter one, we read of Solomon, the son of David, riding upon the back of a donkey from the east of Jerusalem. Okay. Coming into the city, being proclaimed as the king. You see, the very son of David that sat upon David's throne, Solomon, he pictures for us this very scene that we read about here in Luke's gospel. The description of Solomon's coronation as king was a shadow of something that was going to take place over 900 years from then as Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, came in from the east of Jerusalem, entering into the city upon the back of a donkey. Everywhere you look, you see pictures of Jesus proclaiming himself to be king, proclaiming to be the Messiah from the riding on a donkey to the spreading of their garments to the shouts of praises as he entered into Jerusalem, all pointed to one thing. Jesus is, in fact, the long awaited king of the Jews. He is their Messiah. And while there was a great multitude that were excited about all that was happening, there was one particular group that was not so happy with this outward display of Jesus' proclamation as king. So let's read verses 39 and 40. It says, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. As all of this was unfolding, the Pharisees took notice, and they came out to Jesus, tried to rebuke Jesus, The Pharisees knew very well what was implied by the riding on the donkey, the garments spread out, the praises that were being sung unto Jesus. They knew that Jesus was making a claim to be their Messiah. But the Pharisees, listen, they had already chosen to refuse Christ. They had already chosen to refuse their Messiah. They had been plotting for some time now to put an end to not only Jesus' ministry, but his very life. Their consternation towards Jesus was further evidence of Jesus' presentation as king. They wouldn't have cared at all what the people were saying unless they felt threatened by Jesus' presentation and all that was taking place. They were well aware of what all of these things meant. And when they came on scene, as Jesus was descending the mountain, they called out to Jesus to give him, to get him to rebuke his disciples. They wanted to shut Jesus up and they wanted to shut up any who would proclaim the praises of Jesus. You know, that's still going on today. We don't maybe not have uh, Pharisees necessarily walking around, but there are all sorts of people out there that want to shut up any and all that want to share the praises of Jesus Christ. And so don't be surprised if as you share Christ, you encounter roadblocks. And you encounter the same spirit of these Pharisees that were fearful of losing their power and their control as the religious leaders of that day. The same spirit is alive in all of those that want to shut up Jesus and those that speak of him. Because when you strip it down to the reality of the matter, you see that it really is about people's struggle with losing power and control over their own life that keeps them from wanting to hear about Jesus Christ. That's why they don't want to like to hear about Jesus because surrendering to Jesus and acknowledging and praising him as Lord and Savior means having to give up power and control over your life and living according to God's ways and God's word. People don't want to give up their perceived power over their own life, their own will to do and say whatever they want. And so when people speak of Jesus, it creates in them a fear, a fear of losing that power, of losing that control, and they just don't want to hear about it. That's exactly where the Pharisees were at. 
They didn't want to give up their power and control to Jesus, and they wanted to put an end to the scene as quick as possible. Jesus replied to them and told them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And I love that. Jesus said, hey, if this choir of praise and rejoicing were to be silenced, i got a rock band right here that's ready to pick up right where they left off. Right. And part of me wishes they would have been quiet just to kind of, you know, to see what that would have been like or to hear about what that would have been like. If his people would not recognize him and praise him, creation itself would start shouting out his praise. That's how bold of a declaration that was taking place as he entered into the city of Jerusalem. Amazing. Let's look to these final verses. We'll wrap up our text here, verses 41 through 44. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. As Jerusalem comes into view, and nearly everyone, uh, besides the Pharisees, and nearly everyone around Jesus is rejoicing and celebrating. Man, this is such an amazing thing. Jesus wept. Now, the word translated here, wept, does not mean simply to you know, shed a few tears, a, a single streaming tear, a tear down the cheek. Okay? It implies wailing and lamenting, okay? every external expression of grief. It is like an uncontrollable sobbing, a flooding of emotions to the point of overwhelming tears. Why did Jesus weep? Three reasons are alluded to in our text. Number one, Jesus wept because they did not want, know what made for their peace. The people so longed for peace. And here they have the Prince of Peace coming down to them, and they don't even understand the peace that he can offer. When Christ was born, the angels declared, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. But because the people are going to reject their Messiah, they will not have the opportunity for peace on earth. Notice how in their own words in verse 38 that we look to already, this is alluded to. Glory is still given to God in the highest, but peace on earth has been replaced with peace in heaven. Warren Wearsby said in this in his commentary, he said, because the king was rejected, there could be no peace on earth. Instead, there would be constant bitter conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. There would be no peace on earth, but Thanks to Christ's work on the cross, there is peace with God in heaven. And the appeal today is, be ye reconciled to God. If you're looking for peace on earth, you are going to be sadly disappointed. We need to long for peace with God in heaven. Our peace does not come from earth, but from the Lord and through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Number two, Jesus wept because he knew their future destruction was coming. In verses 43 and 44, Jesus speaks of an attack upon Jerusalem that will not leave one stone upon another. The type of attack was going to be a complete cutoff of supply that would cause not just the lives of soldiers, but all of its citizens. And the fulfillment of these words happened in less than 40 years from when Jesus spoke them. For in the year 66 A.D., The Jews revolted against Roman control, trying to acquire the peace they so desperately longed for. And three years later, Titus, son of the Roman emperor Vespasian, was sent to crush the rebellion. Roman soldiers attacked Jerusalem. They broke through the northern wall, but they still couldn't take the city. And finally, they laid siege to it, just like Jesus describes here in verses 43 and 44. And in the year 70 AD, they were able to enter the severely weakened city of Jerusalem. They were able to burn it and the temple to the ground. Historical records indicate that over 600,000 Jews were killed during Titus's onslaught of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus knew that this was coming to them and it made him weep uncontrollably. But number three, lastly, Jesus wept because they didn't know that this was their day, that this was the time of their visitation. Jesus said, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, 
Okay, the things that make for your peace. And he also mentions that they didn't know the time of their visitation. This day was special. Something about this day was something that the people of Jerusalem should have known about. Jesus expected them to know the significance and the importance of this very day. For years, again, it was my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But all that changed on this exact day. This was their day, the day of their visitation, and they should have known. Jesus expected them to know, but why? Why did he expect them to know? Because the prophets foretold the coming of this exact day. In the book of Daniel, we read of how the angel Gabriel met with the prophet Daniel and informed him of the time when Messiah would come and then be cut off. You may want to turn to Daniel chapter 9 here. It'll be the last portion of the text that we look to. We'll have it up on the screen, but I think it's good to be able to look at it too if you have the Old Testament with you. In Daniel chapter 9, um, verse 22, Gabriel declared to Daniel, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks, or literally sevens, okay, seventy sevens, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, or literally seven sevens, and sixty-two weeks, again, sixty-two sevens, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times, and after the sixty-two weeks, the sixty-two sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Until the end, war desolations are determined. This portion of scripture and the prophecy associated with it is commonly referred to as Daniel's 70-week prophecy. But the word week does not necessarily refer to a seven-day period. The literal translation of the Hebrew word that's used here, it's Shabuah, uh, is sevens. It refers to any set of seven. Okay, Think of it like our modern-day use of the English word dozen. Okay, When we say a dozen, we know that we're talking about a set of 12 items. Likewise, in Hebrew, when you use the word shabuah, we know that we're speaking about a set of seven things. And here in our text, it's referring to time increments. Though it says weeks in our translation, referring to a set of seven days, I'm going to suggest to you that the use of the word Shabuah is not in reference to a set of seven days, but seven years. It is the only increment of time that makes any sense. As we'll note later on in verse 25, this prophecy speaks of Messiah the Prince, and we all know that this is a reference to Jesus Christ. Seven years is the only time increment that makes any sense in regards to Jesus Christ and the Messiah. Now, verse 25 is where I want to draw your attention. I want you to read it again. Daniel 9, 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, so 69 weeks in total. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Gabriel wanted Daniel to know and understand something about a time frame that involved Messiah the Prince. And we already noted how Gabriel had given Daniel the skill to understand in verse 22. Understanding this prophecy was of the utmost importance. Daniel is given skill to understand by Gabriel in verse 22. He's told to consider the matter and understand the vision in verse 23. And here again in verse 25, he's told, know therefore and understand. Do you think God expected Daniel to understand the vision? (laughs) I think so, right? Absolutely, without any doubt whatsoever, Daniel was to know and understand exactly what this prophecy meant. And I submit to you that God's people the Jews, as the recipients of Daniel's prophecy, should have known and understood this prophecy as well. Now, verse 25 speaks of a timetable that begins with a decree, a command that goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and it culminates with Messiah the Prince. The time frame is seven weeks, or again, seven sevens, and 62 weeks, or 62 sevens. 
It's the same Hebrew word used throughout this text. It's the word Shabuah. Okay? During said time frame, the street or open square shall be built and the wall, even in troublesome times. What we have here is a time marker given for the Messiah. From the going forth of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem, there will be 69 sevens until the Messiah. And so if we could find out when that decree went forth, well, then we could then start our prophetic stopwatch, right? And we can count out the 69 sevens and it should end with a presentation of Messiah the Prince. Well, the Bible records for us four different decrees that went forth regarding the Jewish people going back to Jerusalem to rebuild, which creates a problem, right? Which one of those decrees is the one where we start our clock? There are three decrees recorded for us in the book of Ezra in chapters 1, chapter 6, and in chapter 7, and one recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, each one taking place at different times in history. But when you look closely at these decrees, you will come to find that only one of the four decrees fits the description and details given to Daniel in chapter 9. If you look at verse 25 again, the command was about restoring and building Jerusalem, specifically mentioning the streets, the open squares, and the wall. The first three decrees in the book of Ezra only dealt with the building of the house of the Lord, the temple. Okay? None of the decrees given to us in Ezra fit the description that's given here. Only Nehemiah's decree fits the description regarding restoring and building the city of Jerusalem and the walls. Nehemiah chapter 2 tells us of the conversation that took place between King Artaxerxes and his cupbearer, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was sad in the presence of the king. And when the king sought reason for Nehemiah's sad countenance, he told him about the reports that he had heard about how the city of Jerusalem still lied in ruins. So Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah, what, what should be done? And this is how Nehemiah responded in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He said, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And if you are familiar with Nehemiah's account, of building the walls, you will also note and know that it was done during troublesome times as the workers would with one hand work at construction and with the other hand they would held onto a weapon okay, under threat of being attacked while they're building. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 17 gives us those details. So according to Daniel, from the moment Nehemiah's decree went out, we could then start the prophetic stopwatch and count out 69 sevens, and it would end in the appearance of the Messiah. Scripture tells us that Nehemiah's decree went forth in the month of Nisan. It's a Jewish month, okay, around our March-April time frame, okay? Scripture tells us that it went forth in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that. History tells us that his father, Xerxes I, died in the year 465 B.C. on our Gregorian calendar, if there was not a time of co-regency, where they both reigned at the same time, then Artaxerxes' 20th year would have been the year 445 B.C. Now we're going to do a little bit of computation here, just a little bit of math, all right? Now for me, I love math, okay, because I used to be a math teacher before joining the ministry full-time, and anytime I can bring a little math into our study, that's a plus, I feel like, Okay. But I know that not everyone has a love affair with math, okay? For some of you, the mention of, of math just sends this shiver down your spine, and you're like, I don't want to hear it, you know. Uh, don't worry, I'll show you my work, or at least the notes of it, and you'll be able to follow along, okay? I'll try and keep it simple. If we are to count down from this to decree 69 sevens, we have to do a little bit of math, okay? We have to do 69 times 7, right? When we do 69 times 7, we get... 483, okay? So 483. Now, remember, I suggested that the sevens represented not groups of seven days, but seven years. So the 69 sevens would equate to 483 years. Everyone tracking? Okay, great. 
One problem we have to work around is the use of different calendars. The 445 BC start dates based upon our Gregorian calendar, uh, which has you know 365 and a quarter days to a year. But many suggest that scripture and biblical prophecy more often relates to a 12-month year consisting of 30 days in each month. As you go through and you read through different accounts in Genesis throughout the Old Testament, really, you'll see, prophetically speaking, that it would be 30-day months and on a 12-month rotation. So when talking about years prophetically, we would look to that as a 360-day calendar. Now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, it's a, the year is 360. I'm just saying from a prophetic picture. When we look at prophecy, we can look at it from a 360-day year. And we have to do some more math, okay? I'm going to give you the answers, though, so don't worry, okay? (laughs) If we take the 483 years, we convert them to days. Based upon a 360-day year, we come up with 173,880, okay? 173,880 days. Now, if we take the Gregorian calendar date of 445 BC and we count out 173,880 days from the month of Nisan, again, our March-April time frame, we would find ourselves in the spring, in the Jewish month of Nisan, in the year 32 AD, right before the Jewish festival of Passover. Based upon Daniel's prophecy, the countdown of these days would lead not only to a presentation of Messiah, but also a time where he would subsequently be cut off, referring to the fact that the Messiah would be killed. And that's exactly what we know happens, right? He presents himself on Sunday and they're going to crucify him by Friday. He'll be cut off. It is my belief that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is a fulfillment of the 69 weeks of years from the moment the decree went forth from Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2. A countdown began culminating on this exact day where Jesus presents himself as the Messiah. 173,880 days after Artaxerxes' decree went forth, Jesus presented himself as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And I believe and submit to you today that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy and that Daniel knew and understood this and that the Jews should have known and understood this as well. The rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem was a monumental day in the history of the nation of Israel. It was a day everyone should have remembered. In Jeremiah 16, the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, telling the people of Israel about how they will no longer be referred to as the people whom the Lord brought out of the land of Egypt, but they will be known as the people the Lord brought up from the land of the north as they return from captivity in Babylon. This return to Jerusalem was a huge ordeal. Okay? It was what was to define them as a nation moving forward. No longer were they the people brought up out of Egypt, but they are the people whom God brought back into the land from Babylon. This would be a very important day in the history of the nation, and we remember important days in the history of our nations, do we not? Right? Most of you are Americans, and we know what happened on July 4th, 1776, right? It's a date that defines us. Okay, for you Marines, many of you know what happened. November 10th, 1775. It is a date that defines you. One you guys just celebrated. Happy birthday. Okay. The decree given to Nehemiah to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem was that kind of date. It was a date that all should have known. It was a part of their history, part of what defined them. And that is why Jesus wept over the city because they failed to realize that the prophet Daniel had given to them the exact day in which he would arrive and present himself as the Messiah. They did not know that this was their day. They did not know that the t- this was their time of visitation. The scriptures had foretold this day. Daniel had given them a time marker to count down until the days of the Messiah and they should have known. But I must also remind you guys that there still remains one final week of Daniel's prophecy. It's not the 69-week prophecy. It's the 70-week prophecy of Daniel. There were 70 weeks of years in all. 69 weeks of years have passed. Then the Messiah was cut off. But one seven-year period still remains for the nation of Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem. And I believe that time is referring to what we read about in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19, what's referred to as the seven-year tribulation period, a time where God's wrath is poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. Trust me when I say you do not want to be around to experience that for yourselves. But don't be lulled to sleep thinking that that day won't come. 
For just as the Jews were forewarned and told about Jesus' first coming, we too have been told and forewarned about what is to come in his second coming. His second coming and the tribulation will be a dangerous time. It will be a time of widespread death and destruction, famine and plagues, chaos and cosmic disturbances, great earthquakes. It isn't anything we would ever want to be part of. And by God's grace, and by God's grace alone, I do not believe we'll have to be as believers. For I believe the scriptures attest to the fact that before the tribulation comes, Jesus will first descend to the clouds with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I believe that the rapture of the church will take place prior to the final week of Daniel, that seven-year period of tribulation, that we will not have to go through that final week, but we will be spared from it. But that only applies to those who are believers in the Lord today. You see, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, then you will face the wrath of God for rejecting His Son. Be confident that just as God spoke through Daniel of the coming of Jesus Christ the first time, God's Word assures us He is coming again a second time. Let's make sure that we are living our lives in such a way so that we are ready for Him when He comes for us. That we won't make the same mistake that the Jews did in missing the day of our visitation. Listen, you need to get right with the Lord today. You need to be ready for Him when He comes calling for us. Do not put it off any longer. Today is the day of salvation. If you've yet to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender to Him as such, you need to do so. <laughs> don't mess around. Don't wait any longer. You don't know when you'll have another opportunity to get this right. And Jesus is coming back. Just as sure as he came once, he will come again. May we be ready. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you how you do work out all of the details, Lord, and you are in control of all of these things. And Lord, we read some of these things, we're just blown away at the fulfillment of prophecy that occurred here on that exact day. You came down the mountain on the back of a donkey, Lord, the back of a colt. Lord, prophecies from 500 years ago, 900 years ago, all fulfilled in that day. Lord, we thank you that just as you had a plan and a purpose and that Jesus was working and operating upon a divine timeline, you have plans and purposes for us to walk in as well. And Lord, I pray that we would be just as bold and just as open as Jesus was as he came to fulfill your mission, Lord, that we would go about fulfilling the mission you've given to us, remembering even last week what we looked at, that we would occupy, that we would do business till you come. We're in this in-between time waiting for you to return. We know you're going to come back, Lord. May we be ready. May we be diligent uh, at what you've given to us to do. May we be faithful. Lord, I pray that if there are any here that need to surrender their life to you today, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that they would not put it off any longer, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior, and that they might be welcomed into your presence, that they might find peace that, passes, that surpasses all understanding, the kind of peace that only comes through a personal, intimate relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray, do a work in their hearts and lives of those, your people. Lord, we live uh, in days that are challenging. And we look around and we think, man, uh, I, at least I do, Lord. I look around and I think, wow, it's got to be soon. I don't know how much worse it can get. I know it's going to get worse, though, Lord. So, Lord, keep our focus upon you. Keep our eyes upon you. May we continually look to you and long for you in our everyday. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.